Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. When USA Today invited the readers to send in questions about fracking for Duke University professor Robert Jackson, readers responded with such questions as, what happens to the chemicals that are left behind after the fracking process? What is the risk to well water? It's my understanding that fracking uses massive amounts of water and does fracking cause earthquakes. We'll be asking several of these questions and many more. We'll open the phone lines and email lines to you for your questions. For fracking expert Robert Jackson, he's Nicholas Chair of Global Environmental Change at the Nicholas School of Environment and Professor of Biology at Duke University. He's co-author of an important study on fracking. Uh, several uh, studies have come out uh, from uh, uh, Dr. Jackson. And he'll give a lecture today on the Utah State University campus for the USU Quinney College of Natural Resources titled Oil and Gas Hydrofracking in the Marcellus Shale. That's open to the public, and that is at noon at Natural Resources, room 105 on the USU campus. And, of course, uh, fracking is controversial, uh, but there's a lot of promise. Proponents say that it's a bridge, potential bridge to renewable energy. It produces cheap methane. Uh, provides jobs, reduces foreign dependence on oil, and is relatively clean compared to other sources of energy. Opponents have uh, identified problems, methane in the drinking water, also uh, gas in the uh, pollutants in the air, uh, exploding homes, earthquakes. You've heard all of this, and uh, we're going to get... uh, Try to, to, to drill down, pun intended, to the uh, to, to, to the truth with a fracking expert today. The phone lines are open right now. 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. Or you can uh, join us at upraxis at gmail.com. Upraxis at gmail.com. Robert Jackson, welcome to the program. Nice to be back in Utah. You are a, you're an Aggie? I am. I, my uh, wife and I both went to graduate school in Logan, and we're, uh, we're glad to be back visiting. Hmm. So you've—I don't know how you got into studying uh, fracking. It's very apropos subject, and you're you're on media all over to answering questions about uh, fracking. I got into fracking really because of many years worth of studies looking at groundwater issues, including land use, uh, the opportunity to store carbon dioxide underground, many other things, and ended up studying fracking just because there was no no scientific research on it. Mm. So let's start at the beginning. Um, I mean, we have a, we all have an idea of what fracking is, but there, it's very important to, to, to get to what fracking is and what it is not. And often in conflict points between the, the companies and uh, environmentalists, you get into uh, definitions broad or narrow of what fracking actually is. What, what is fracking? Well, fracking literally is using water, so pumping most, most of the time millions of gallons of water um, sand uh, and chemicals underground to crack open rocks. And by cracking open those rocks, you allow the oil and gas to flow back up to the surface. And this uh, this is accompanied with horizontal drilling, as I understand it. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, many cases nowadays, a, a well is drilled down, might be, might be a mile or two underground, but then uh, companies go a mile or two sideways. Sometimes I've used the analogy of a, of a cake, and, and, and I like icing on a cake. And once you've licked all the icing off the top, there's this thin layer of icing in the middle of the cake. And if you were to drill down into that cake, you'd just intersect that layer of icing in one small spot. But if you could drill down into the cake and then go sideways tracking that layer, then you'd be in business. And that's mm. what companies can do today. Mm. And this is mostly in shale. It's mostly in shale, but not just in shale. Mm. Here in, in Utah, uh, especially in the western states, there is a lot of uh, tight oil and gas in sandstone formations. Mm. And uh, so we're talking mostly about methane? 
Well, we're talking about methane, uh, but also oil. There's okay. a balance of, of oil and natural gas. Natural gas is mostly methane. Sometimes it, it includes ethane and propane, other, other gases that are valuable. Um, so it's a mix of, of oil and gas, depending on where you are in the country. And with this new technology, drilling horizontally and fracking or fracturing the rock so you can get at this uh, gas and, and oil, uh, I understand that the the estimates of reserves have have been growing. Uh, this is these are tapping resources we couldn't get to before. And the the growth has been amazing. I, you know, five or ten years ago in the United States, we were talking about building import terminals for liquefied natural gas to bring natural gas into the U.S. from other countries. Now we're having the opposite conversation. Should we be building export terminals um, to, to send some of the gas around to other, other continents and other, other countries? Um, I think it, that, that transformation, first of all, is, is very remarkable. I mean, a second remarkable thing happened last year. Um, for the first time, we produced as much electricity with natural gas as we do with coal. Mm. Nobody predicted that even two or three years ago. Mm. And this is where the proponents of this uh, technology and, and this resource are saying that, uh, well, natural gas, uh, it's much cleaner than coal, right? That's exactly right. It, it has, at least when you burn it, uh, a much a lower amount of, of carbon dioxide that it generates, uh, coal pollution from particulate matter, I think it's safe to say, kills thousands of people a year. Natural gas burning doesn't generate that kind of particulate matter or sulfur pollution or nitrogen pollution. So there are a lot of reasons to be, to be bullish on natural gas. Mm. Uh, it provides jobs as well. And, uh, of course, we all feel like, well, most of us feel like we need to get to renewables. But uh, with this increase in reserves, this is, this is what they're talking about. This is a potential bridge to, to renewables. That's right. President Obama, in his State of the Union address last year, spent quite a bit of time talking about natural gas as a, as a bridge, uh, bridge to the future. And I think that, that's really the rub, is what people mean when they say a bridge. And I think then, then you start to get into some of the nuances in different, different groups, if you will. You know, for some people, a bridge might be a decade or two as we move very quickly towards renewables. For other people, you know, a bridge means 50 or 100 years or perhaps when we've exploited all of the the, the exploitable natural gas in the country. So I think then now you start to get into the brass tacks of how much are we going to use, how much emphasis do you place on the greenhouse gas emissions, because one of the big uncertainties in, in natural gas extraction with hydraulic fracturing is the amount of leakage, both while the how much methane leaks into the air while the drilling is occurring and how much methane leaks out of pipelines into the air, which is something that our group at Duke has also studied. Mm. We'll get into that as, as well. A lot has been said, of course, uh, uh, and uh, you could consider it considered or hysterical, and, and there there's all all opinions on that. But you do you, all you have to do is uh, do a Google search, and uh, and there's a lot out there, including a couple of documentaries on on the subject. Uh, I want to ask about uh, how long do we think th- this will last? The reserves, at least the estimation of the reserves, are growing, but of course this is a non-renewable resource. I understand with uh, fracking, and uh, you you punch into these wells horizontally. This the, this tends to these wells tend to be exhausted much more quickly than uh, than conventional technology. The wells produce more gas initially, especially with the long horizontal uh, part of the of the drilling that occurs. Um, the de- what's called a decline curve, how rapidly the the flow tails off uh, is faster, appears to be faster with with uh, these unconventional wells, but um, you know, there's a lot of gas. We're we're talking about in this country doing this conservatively for at least a couple of decades, mm. I think probably much longer. That's one of the reasons why 
in my research and in the research of others at Duke and elsewhere, the, the motivating factor for, for the research is to try and reduce the number of problems. Mm. In the minority of cases where something goes wrong, where we think we see contamination of, of water, of drinking water, um, uh, dialing down the leaks from, from natural gas infrastructure, we want to get this right. We want to reduce the problems because natural gas is here to stay. Couple of decades, you're saying? At least, yeah. Interesting. They'll, they'll be they'll be drilling of many many wells, yeah, uh, for decades. Right. Uh, I want to, to we'll get into some of these specific problems, and you've done you've done research on uh, on a couple of these, and I and I understand uh, your research is is some of the first. Our research, uh, looking at water quality uh, and drinking water, it was the first, uh, came out in 2011. We've had a couple of follow-ups since then. But, yeah, we were the first group, myself, Avner Vengosh, other colleagues at Duke, to ask a simple question. And that is, is your water any different if you're living near a natural gas well than if you're living far away? Mm. And we're going to open up the phone lines. Uh, such questions you may have as uh, does this actually uh, pollute the, the drinking water? You see, uh, and I've seen dramatic footage on YouTube. Uh, you know, not that you want to, to base everything on YouTube, but it seems credible. This nice lady uh, runs tap water from her uh, from her tap and then lights it on fire with a, with a match. So we'll get into that. Uh, we're talking with uh, Robert Jackson, uh, who is. Uh, Nicholas, Chair of Global Environmental Change at the Nicholas School of Environment, Duke University. He's Professor of Biology at Duke as well. He's giving a lecture uh, this afternoon at noon, in fact, uh, for the Quinney College of Natural Resources. It's called Oil and Gas Hydrofracking in the Marcellus Shale. Robert Jackson, one of the foremost authorities on fracking. We're grateful to have him here to answer our questions. The number is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Or you can reach us by email at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. One last question on the on the process. Uh, so you, you drill down, the companies would drill down vertically, and then they would drill over uh, horizontally. This gets them at reserves that would not, be able to be gotten at and then uh, what a small explosion to to get in initially then you drill some more and uh, uh, i've been reading about toes and and heels Mm -hmm. of of feet maybe Mm -hmm. you could explain that a little more um well both processes horizontal uh, drilling and hydraulic fracturing have actually been around for quite a while i think what's different today is the 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 distances we can go down and out companies go down and out and also the volumes of water and the chemicals that are used that that's not the same as what was done 10 20 even 50 years ago um so when when a company drills down and then out they have to perforate the the well and and force the cracks into the rock and they do that uh, that's that's how the hydraulic fracturing is done the pumping of water under very very high pressures underground they perforate the wells the water goes up into the um, in the formations, cracks open that rock, and then the sand and other things that are in the in the water are called propants. They're used to prop those cracks open when the water disappears. Uh, this is high pressure, very high pressure, like you see at the the deepest part of the ocean. Right, and uh, then companies will uh, most of it's water, right? But the, but they'll add additives. Most of it's water. Uh, you often hear statements like ninety nine percent of what's in the the. Uh, uh, fracturing fluids is water, and there's a bunch of sand. Well, 1% of 10, 20, 30 million pounds is still hundreds of thousands of pounds of chemicals, potentially. Mm. This is an industrial activity in many cases in people's backyards, literally. And that's one thing that makes it different, and one reason why we have to be particularly careful about the safeguards that are put into place. Mm-hmm. 
We'll talk about that. And and there's some hopeful news. This is, this is from NPR that I just pulled up. I, I missed this story, but Elizabeth Shogren's story uh, from March 21st. Um, their environmentalists and drillers, drilling companies, have reached a truce. They're calling it for, for fracking standards, 15 voluntary standards. We'll get into that as we as we go along. We do have a caller, and uh, Professor, I'll ask you to put on your headphones. You'd find those, uh, I think, under the table here. Should have had you put those on before the before the uh, program so that you can hear our caller. And uh, our caller is Brian in Logan. Brian, uh, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. I was just wondering, in places like North Dakota, where there's a large amount of drilling going on and a, and a large amount of, of uh, fracking going on, how does that affect the local water there? I mean, just in such a short amount of time, tons and tons of drilling going on. The, the Bakken formation in North Dakota really is remarkable. The pace of drilling that's occurring there, um, that's a formation that has a lot of oil, and oil is more valuable than natural gas right now. Um, okay. So there, there haven't been studies, to my knowledge, looking at uh, interactions with water quality there. That's an area where there isn't a very high density of people living, um, mm-hmm. uh, which you know, makes the likelihood of problems uh, lower, if you will. But um, okay. you know, we really don't know that much about the, the water situation there. What we do know about the Bakken is you know, tens of thousands of people rushing there in this boom for, for oil and natural mm-hmm. gas. Okay. All right. Thanks very much. I just know that I have, I have a lot of friends that I'm from, I'm from Idaho and going to school in Utah. I have lots of friends that, like you said, people just flock there to, to help with the, with the mining and uh, the, the drilling and things like that. So I was just wondering how that affected, affected the water situation. So. There was an interesting uh, map that NASA put out. It's actually a graphic of, of the U.S. at night. We've all seen these maps of the Earth at night. Well, if you, if you Google the, the U.S. at night recently, there's a map, and there is uh, the pictures of the cities. You can see the cities coming out because of their lights. But there is one galaxy of light on that map that isn't a city, and that galaxy of light is the Bakken Shale. Hmm. And this is a formation where a third of the natural gas is simply flared, simply burned in place, because they can't get it to market. So you can see the Bakken from space in a night, in a night map. Amazing, amazing. Uh, Brian, your concern was, was uh, drinking water? Yeah, was, yeah, I mean, because there's so many people, like you said, flocking there, and they're drilling like crazy, and they're, they're just going for So they're not going for natural gas as much there. It's mostly just oil there, though, right? They get both out of the Bakken. The oil is so much more valuable right now because of the, okay. the, price, the price difference between them. They're, they are getting meaningful amounts of natural gas, but it's a long way from, from, uh, from cities and people, and natural gas is harder to transport than oil is. Okay, that makes sense. All right, well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate that. Yeah, this is uh, this whole boom uh, has not only scientific implications, but sociological and, and uh, political and uh, you see this from space, you're saying. It's, they're, they're burning off this natural gas. Yeah, you, you really, literally, you can see it from space. Yeah. It, it, is, uh, it is an experiment, if you will. It's an industrial activity in people's backyards. Uh, there's no question it creates jobs, has many benefits. But each well has 1,000 truck traffic, 1,000 uh, truck trips for water and the chemicals and such. And I live on a quiet gravel road with nine other houses. If, if a couple of houses on my road signed a lease for oil and gas, um, which they would have the, the the opportunity to do if the resource was available. You know, I would get the the truck traffic and the dust and the noise and the vibrations along with those people without getting the economic gain. And I think that's one reason why this divides people and communities so much. Yeah, it really does. You do see the see this it's just just uh, 
first while friends and neighbors just turned enemies. It's uh, is this particular technology does this bring this closer to to people's backyard than than other technology has? It it does, and, and the one reason it does is because getting it out of the ground is different than old school geology. In, in, in a conventional well, you might punch a hole in the ground, and the oil or gas would come. Uh, bubbling up, or maybe you have to pump it up a little bit. You know, think of the Beverly Hillbillies. You know, he shoots shoots at this rabbit, and the oil comes bubbling up out of the ground. You know, that that was conventional technology. Tight gas, shale gas, sandstone gas is different, and oil is different. You've got to to do something. You've got to do more to get that out of the ground. But what's also different about it is you're not targeting a single formation. In, in traditional oil and gas, you might look for an anticline, a dome, if you will where through millions of years the gas has bubbled up and then is trapped there under a, a confining layer of rock. And a company would drill down into that dome and take out the oil or gas. In, in unconventional resources like this, you're just covering the real estate. That means every square mile you're going to have a, a certain number of wells to get the oil and gas out of the ground, and it really doesn't matter what's around you in terms of houses or um, you know or wildlife or anything else. The companies are, are covering the real estate, and we're, we're looking at – at uh, covering large areas of Pennsylvania, Texas, and other states with thousands and thousands of wells in a checkerboard pattern. Hmm. We're talking about hydraulic fracturing or fracking. It's, of course, been much in the news, very controversial. We talked about some of the controversy. There's some positive here. Proponents say that this reduces our dependence on foreign oil. The, the uh, estimations of reserves of natural gas uh, are are exploding uh, because of the the new technology. You can get it to reserves that you wouldn't be able to get out uh, before. Uh, But some harmful effects. And when we come back from a break, which we're going to take, we'll talk with Robert Jackson from Duke University, expert on fracking, about uh, some of these um, concerns about fracking. Does it pollute um, drinking water? Is that harmful? Uh, Does it cause earthquakes? And just how much water does this take, and uh, is that a harmful effect? We'll be asking these questions and your questions as well, 1-800-826-1495 or upraxis at gmail.com following the break. With his black fedora hat, Jack Abramoff became the symbol of everything that's corrupt about government. But now he's out of prison and seeking atonement. Join us for a candid interview with former lobbyist Jack Abramoff. How do we as a society deal with the redemption of our worst? It's to the best of our knowledge. From PRI, Public Radio International. Sunday mornings at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Support for Utah Public Radio is provided by the Utah Humanities Council, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through the humanities. Online at utahhumanities.org. Hydraulic fracturing or fracking is our subject for the hour. Any question that you have ever wanted to ask, you have the opportunity. Fracking expert Robert Jackson from Duke University is with me for the hour. He's giving a lecture on the Utah State University campus for the Quinney College of Natural Resources called Oil and Gas Hydrofracking in the Marcellus Shale. Uh, Dr. Jackson is the Nicholas Chair of Global Environmental Change at the Nicholas School of Environment at Duke University. He's a professor in the biology department there. And that lecture is noon today, Natural Resources Room 105 on the USU campus. As I mentioned earlier, when uh, USA Today opened up 
the, to their readers an invitation to send in questions to Dr. Jackson. Uh, these were some of the ones uh, that he got. What happens to the chemicals that are left behind after the fracking process? What's the risk to well water? It's my understanding fracking uses massive amounts of water, and does fracking cause earthquakes? We're going to get into those questions right now. And uh, your questions as well, 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or upraxis at gmail.com for an email, upraxis at gmail.com. This is uh, controversial, and uh, some states and some areas are not allowing fracking, fracking right, Professor Jackson? Uh, Don't Frack Ohio is the kind of the latest uh, big grassroots uh, movement. Uh, and uh, I understand uh, North Carolina, your your home state now, uh, is uh, they've created a board, a panel that's looking at this. I don't know if they've uh, returned with their results yet. They're they're being very careful about it. Well, we have a brand new mining and energy commission in North Carolina. Our our state is interesting because we have no history of commercial oil and gas production. Um, this is the first time where where people feel like there is at least potentially enough of the resource that drilling might 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 come to North Carolina. That means we're starting from scratch uh, in terms of the regulations and the safeguards that are put into place. Um, in, in our group at Duke, we have made uh, a number of recommendations based on what other states have done, taking the best of of what states like Texas and Pennsylvania and others with a long history of extraction uh, use for their safeguards. Mm. We'll get into some of those uh, potential regulations. Uh, so the, the, I guess one of the key questions is, does uh, the results from fracking, especially this gas, does, does this pollute water? And you know, I mentioned that YouTube videos you can see of nice ladies lighting their tap water on fire. Um, anecdotally, at least, there's, there's evidence that there, there is gas leaking into water. I think that's right, and this this is probably the number one question I get, which is, does does fracking pollute drinking water? I'm going to answer this very carefully because for many things that we've looked at, um, we don't see any evidence of things that people care about. You know, I've worked in the Marcellus for a number of years now. Uh, we just published a study for the Fayetteville Shale in Arkansas with the U.S. Geological Survey showing no evidence for uh, for fracking contamination. We're working in Texas. But in some cases, I think we do see evidence of contamination, particularly for stray gases, things like methane, ethane, and propane. Now, that's not as big a problem as if you had benzene uh, or some of the other carcinogens or hazardous air pollutants that have been suggested to be in groundwater in a case like Pavilion, Wyoming, um, where I think it is likely that, that, uh, that some direct contamination occurred. But we have found uh, evidence for higher methane for people living within a kilometer, about half a mile of natural gas wells, we think it's coming mostly from poorly constructed wells, not necessarily from the step of of hydrofracking, but from wells that leak, either the wells that are cemented poorly, wells where the casing wasn't done properly, or wells perhaps where just someone was in a hurry um, um, to get the job done. And that I think we, we, we have conclusive evidence for in the Marcellus in a minority of cases, um, and that's something that we've made specific recommendations on to, to try and improve that situation. Hmm. So uh, that is hopeful because those, these are problems which could be corrected? Yeah, that's, that's right. Now, I already mentioned that we're in, as a country, we're in natural gas for the long term, regardless of, of what a person's particular views about that are. Um, that means that we have a responsibility to to make the safeguards as strong as possible, to spend a little more money, I think, to make, the, to make this uh, as, as transparent and safe as possible to get it right, which is ultimately in everybody's interest, the companies involved and everyone in the country. 
In the meantime, if you're if you have methane in your water, are you drinking this? Is that harmful? Well, it, at very high concentrations, it can be harmful because you have a risk of, of explosions. Uh, for instance, if air builds up in in a basement of a house or in a shed, or perhaps in the well itself, uh, there have been cases where where we've had explosions uh, in states like Ohio, uh, Pennsylvania, and people have been killed. That's very rare, though. I, I think um, there there haven't been any studies on the toxicology of methane in drinking water, except at very high concentrations. That's another thing we've we've made some recommendations about. Um, I think the the issue with methane and other gases is that it's it's a symptom that there's something wrong with the well. Um, it's uh, perhaps an imperfect analogy, but if when you go to the doctor and you have a high white corpuscle count, the doctor doesn't know what's wrong with you, but it suggests that your body is fighting some kind of infection. And when you have very high methane in your drinking water, it suggests that there's an imperfection in the well, perhaps a leak. There's something going on that shouldn't be there. Hmm. Do we have studies or do we, do we have knowledge of uh, where the different areas or different uh, methodologies in drilling that produce a better result? Areas where we, we don't have leakage into wells versus areas where we do have leakage into wells. Yeah, I think all of those things. And yeah, to compare a couple of the, the shale gas plays that we've worked in, uh, the Fayetteville Shale in Arkansas, as I mentioned, we found no evidence for any contamination at all. Everything was a, was a clean bill of health, at least for the, for the things that we looked at. And um, that probably is because the geology is different there than, than it is in Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania, the geology is much more fractured, has a lot more faults. Uh, in Arkansas, the, the confining layers above and below the drinking water are much tighter. Um, so the situation there is more ideal than the situation is in the Marcellus. That doesn't mean you can't do this in the Marcellus, but it means I think we're going to have to be more careful of what we do in the Marcellus. And then, of course, you can contrast that with places like Pavilion, Wyoming, where instead of a mile down, the fracking was done as, as shallowly as 1,000 feet down with people getting drinking water as deep as 750 or 800 feet. That's a recipe for trouble. Mm-hmm. And there was trouble. And there, there was it's, trouble. It's, it's, Arguably, yeah. to, you know, the, the, it's disputed trouble, but I think the evidence is pretty strong that, yeah. that there was some trouble there. Yeah. Uh, in the meantime, the people who have problems, you know, home values go down. You know, you know, nobody wants to buy the house if you if you can light your drinking water on fire. Uh, some of these, uh, where where is where is the uh, responsibility and, and liability? I understand in in North Carolina that they're they're thinking about. Um, placing presumptive liability, placing some requirements on companies before they, they go in to test the water to, to, you know, to, to make sure it's okay before you even get going. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Pennsylvania actually has a, a good law in this regard. They have a presumptive liability rule. When we started working, it was 1,000 feet. And what presumptive liability says is that if a homeowner has a problem with his or her water, the drilling company is presumed to have caused that problem if, if it pops up within 12, 6 to 12 months of the, of the drilling. What that fosters is having the companies pay for water testing before the drilling happens. That's great because it keeps the company from having to pay for a water problem that they didn't cause if you have a poor well at your home. And it also provides protections for the homeowner if the water quality changes after the drilling happens. When our first study came out, uh, we found evidence of, of methane contamination out to about 3,000 feet, the law at that time was 1,000 feet. 
we recommended expanding that presumptive liability difference uh, distance in Pennsylvania to 3,000. Uh, the law that was just passed last year increased it to 2,500 feet. Mm. We're looking at the same kind of law, perhaps even a longer presumptive liability distance for North Carolina. And you hear about what you could call strong arm tactics from, you know, very aggressive tactics from companies, you know, the buying silence and that, that kind of thing. I suppose that sort of thing could be written into regulations to, to prevent that kind of thing. Well, I think that the buying science is, buy, buying silence is a, I mean, that's a complicated issue. One of the frustrations for us in, in trying to understand the issues, and you know, again, in the minority of cases where something goes wrong, we want to be able to look at those cases and try and figure out what was it about that situation that caused the problem. When someone has a chemical or even a stray gas like methane that pops up in the water, what typically happens is a company will pay for drinking water to be brought into that house, but often they'll pull the well pump. That means, that means you can't sample that well. So we'll often try and get into a home very quickly if a problem pops up because otherwise, in many cases, we're, we're excluded from sampling, literally, because there's no well in the pump. And also, when these agreements are signed, there are usually non-disclosure clauses, which keeps a homeowner from being able to talk about a problem. And I think that transparency issue is one of the keys in this situation. The more transparency we have, whether it's you know what goes wrong and why, or especially in things like the chemicals that are used in the in the fracturing fluids. The more transparency we have, the more benefits and credit companies will get for phasing out toxic chemicals, and I think everyone will win. Hmm. We're talking with Robert Jackson, who is a fracking expert. We're talking about fracking, obviously. He's giving a lecture today at noon for the Quinney College of Natural Resources. He's from Duke University. Oil and gas hydrofracking in the Marcellus Shales title of the lecture. That's uh, free and open to the public. Uh, noon today in Natural Resources 105. We're taking your calls, your questions, your comments on fracking at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Perhaps you have an experience or uh, you know of someone who has an experience with uh, fracking, uh, good or bad. We'd love to hear that. Upraxis at gmail.com is the email, upraxis at uh, gmail.com. What about uh, gas that then escapes into the air? This can be harmful in form of ozone. You know, you hear of headaches and such, harmful uh, physical effects, uh, not to mention uh, adding to greenhouse gases. Yeah, this is a, another really active area of, of research. Uh, methane leaks from oil and gas operations is the number one source of methane to the atmosphere in the United States from human activities. And that means that a couple of things. We, we don't have very good numbers. We don't have very good data on how much methane leaks out while drilling is occurring and how much leaks out in pipelines. That's relevant because uh, we're trying to understand the full greenhouse gas balance. Uh, if, you, if you look just at the, at the electricity at the power plant, there's no doubt that burning natural gas produces fewer emissions than coal does. Coal has more impurities. Natural gas has a higher energy content. So you get less carbon dioxide emissions for the same unit of energy. But if the pipelines are leaky or if the, uh, ne- uh, the methane that leaks out during extraction in both coal and oil, uh, oil and gas production, um, that might change that balance. So there's a huge amount of work going on now in, 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 in trying to understand how much methane leaks from well pads and how much methane leaks along pipelines. We just published uh, with my colleague Nathan Phillips at, at Boston University the first study to look at uh, a city. We drove every block of the city of Boston. That was 800 road miles with new methane technology 
that measured each leak in that city. We found over 3,000 leaks in the city of Boston. Again, the opportunity, the driving motivation for this is to dial down those leaks, make the situation better. If we're going to use natural gas, let's make it safer for everyone. Hmm. I guess there are problems all along the way, potential problems. I mean, benefits, too. But uh, in in the method by which you extract the gas, transport it, economic imbalances as well. If if they're burning off natural gas, they can't get it to market, then there's some problems there as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're talking with Robert Jackson, fracking expert, and uh, we are taking your calls, your comments, your questions on fracking. Uh, Very controversial, of course, and uh, we have an expert in studio for another about 20 minutes. So your opportunity to ask your fracking question at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. We have a couple of emails, uh, Professor Jackson. This is from Greg and Logan. Many of these communities are going through a large amount of economic growth. How long can they expect these reserves to last before it runs out? Yeah, great question. There, there are a number of people studying boom and bust cycles. There's nothing unique in, in hydraulic fracturing about this. Uh, similar things occur when you build a nuclear power plant or you mine gold or other things. Um, I think the, the smartest communities are trying to find ways to, um, you know, to save some of the money that's coming in, uh, to you know, have a rainy day fund, to stretch out the economic benefits. Um, a lot of the workers that, that come to the jobs are from out of state, for instance, um, because often local communities don't have the, the drilling expertise and such. Um, but, but again, planning, thinking long-term, both in legacy effects of the environment, but also in socioeconomic effects, is a way to, to maximize the benefits and ideally to minimize the problems. Our next emailer is Kylie in Moab. And uh, this is the question. Please address air quality contamination from natural gas development. There's a lot of work on on air quality. Um, There has been uh, recent studies uh, done out of, for instance, the Front Range of Colorado and and in the Uinta Mountains here here in Utah to suggest that leaks from the production phase of oil and gas operations are higher than people thought. One example was a, a recent study done out of Boulder and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. They have a tall tower uh, in Boulder that just measures hydrocarbons in the air. And around 2008, 2009, they started seeing these strange plumes of, of hydrocarbons in the air, not just methane, but benzene and other, other chemicals. There were, there were two sources for those, source, uh, for those gases, one from the city of Denver, So when the air blew from the south from the city, they had high hydrocarbon concentrations. But more interestingly, when the air blew from the northeast down to the southwest across the Denver-Julesburg basin, then they they really found the highest concentrations. They estimate that 4% in that basin of all the methane that's extracted leaks to the atmosphere. Now, that is really high. And and even more surprisingly, recently, um, a similar group published some work in the Uinta Mountains that suggests it's 9%. If those results hold for other basins, then the leak rates are much higher than, than we think they are or that the typical EPA emissions factors are. So this is something that many groups around the country are looking at. You know, how representative of those, how representative are those results? And if they are representative, you know, we have some homework to do in dialing down those, those leaks. And if that's true, then maybe the differential in cleanliness between these forms of energy, natural gas versus coal, is narrower. Well, the break-even point 
for the natural gas balance is somewhere in about 3%. And what I mean by that is if the leakage rate from production of methane and distribution in pipelines is more than 3%, from a greenhouse gas balance standpoint only, uh, it's probably not better than coal. It's still better than coal in terms of pollutants like sulfur and nitrogen and particulates. But for greenhouse gas balance, if we're pretty far over uh, 3%, then we're not getting a greenhouse gas benefit out of this because methane is a far more potent greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide is. Hmm. And our city leaks studies uh, in Boston, we just finished mapping Washington, D.C. for the first time. Uh, Our city leak studies suggest higher leak rates than people plan for, too. Um, So better information, spending more money up front to fix those leaks will help save lives, save money, improve air quality, um, and help the environment. Sounds low. I don't have any numbers in front of me. Sounds like it's be fairly expensive to fix the leaks. Will it? Will it be? Well, it, it is somewhat expensive. It depends on your time frame. Uh, to lay a new mile of, of pipeline in a city like Boston or Washington D.C. costs a million dollars or so. But there's also a lot of lost value in the in the methane and the natural gas that leaks from that pipeline, and a lot of other benefits, economic and social and environmental, for fixing those leaks. So what I I think should be done is is front loading fixing those leaks. Then they have leak replacement rates that companies are paid by utility commissions. If we spend a little more of that money up front, we'll get the money back and we'll help people and the environment. Mm. Robert Jackson is with us. He is uh, Nicholas Chair of Global Environmental Change at the Nicholas School of Environment at Duke University, professor in the biology department there. He's a guest of the Quinney College of Natural Resources today on the USU campus giving a lecture called Oil and Gas Hydrofracking in the Marcellus Shale. That lecture is free and open to the public, and it's at noon today on the USU campus, Natural Resources Building, Room 105. Phone lines and email open to you for uh, fracking expert Robert Jackson for another uh, 10 minutes or so. And uh, we'd love to have your question or comment at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. We're going to talk about wastewater. With those chemicals added to the water that's used, how is the wastewater d- disposed of, and are there harmful effects there? Earthquakes. There have been earthquakes that have been tied to fracking and what are some possible solutions? Uh, what uh, should regulation look like? Or agreements between companies and environmentalists, which uh, apparently is, is happening. We've had a report recently from NPR. Uh, more following the break. One of the most important tasks for managing woody plants, including fruiting and ornamental trees and shrubs, will take place soon. This Thursday on the Zesty Garden, USU Extension entomologist Diane Alston will talk about the practice of using dormant sprays to reduce or prevent the insect outbreaks that can devastate flower and fruit production in your garden. We'll also look at those insects that carry diseases to your vegetables and how you can control them. That's this Thursday at 10 o'clock on UPR's The Zesty Garden. On From the Top, we don't just put young people on the show to hear their incredible musical performances. We celebrate the whole kid. We're all members of the Vermont Astronomical Society, and uh, we've also gotten really into building telescopes. I run cross-country, and I run track. Well, I'll eat anything as long as it's not looking at me and as long as it's not moving around. I believe the correct term is math stud. Join me, Christopher O'Reilly, to meet America's most outstanding young musicians on From the Top each week from NPR. Friday afternoons at 2, repeated Sunday nights at 9 on Utah Public Radio. We're talking about hydraulic fracturing, 
that accompanied with horizontal drilling has enabled companies to uh, tap a lot of resources, an increasing estimation of uh, natural gas and other gas resources that uh, wasn't able to be tapped before. That, proponents say, provides us a potential bridge to renewable energy. A couple of decades' worth of uh, extra gas that wasn't here. It's also domestic. It would help us to reduce our dependence on foreign uh, energy. provides jobs. And uh, it's cleaner than oil. But opponents say that uh, we have methane and other gases uh, in our drinking water, in our air, exploding homes, pollution, and earthquakes. We're going to get into talking about those earthquakes uh, in this final segment of the program. We have Robert Jackson, who's with us. He's from Duke University. He's giving a lecture on the USU campus today, uh, sponsored by the Quinney College of Natural Resources, Oil and Gas Hydrofracking in the Marcellus Shale. That's at noon today, Natural Resources Room 105. Uh, Dr. Jackson and his colleagues, authors of uh, some of the first papers on on fracking. Uh, This has just uh, started to be studied, and uh, so we have a fracking expert with us. Your call, welcome at one 800 1-800-826-1495, or your email at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. And we do have a caller who is uh, Karen in uh, Fruta, Colorado. Uh, Karen, go ahead with your question or comment. Okay, um, my question is, uh, Western Slope, um, I guess, has gotten kind of a, a bad rap with uh, the, the oil business moving to North Dakota, um, and I don't know, you know, one argument is that the restrictions and regulations are too tight, but one other argument I heard is that it is just too expensive at this point in time for those companies to uh, do that that higher elevation uh, hydrofracking, and I just wondered what your take was on that. I, th- I think it's mostly economic. Uh, the places where drilling is happening the fastest now are the Bakken Shale in North Dakota, and uh, other examples include the Eagle Ford Shale in South Texas. The reason drilling is, is happening faster there than in other places, like it was in the Marcellus a few years ago or in the Barnett Shale in Texas, is because those places have a high ratio of oil to natural gas. Natural gas is not not worth that much right now in terms of its price. Its price is low. The oil price is still you know, lingering around $90, $100 a barrel. So companies are moving out, out of the traditional areas and into the Bach and into the Eagle Ford just because for right now that's where they can ma- maximize their return on investment. Okay. So what's your – as far as oil shale then, it, there's just – that's just too involved and, and uh, too expensive again to, to warrant the trade-off? Well, no, in, in the sense that the Bakken, as an example, is, a, uh, is probably the, the biggest boom area in, in, uh, in shale and, and sandstone gas oil extraction right now. And that's because of the, the high ratio of oil to natural gas there. So it's not too expensive, but okay. it's, it's, just, uh, it's just more expensive um, to go after the gas alone. You get more, more bang for your buck if there's a high oil content and high heavy compound content. Okay. That's kind of what I, I figured, um, that maybe once once everything else is uh, done, maybe folks will put a little more uh, effort into the, the western slope. Oh, yeah, when they'll, they'll be back. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, thank you for your time. Thanks, Karen.
Appreciate uh-huh. the appreciate Bye-bye. the call. The number is one eight hundred eight two six one four nine five one eight hundred eight two six eight two six one four nine five or upraxis at gmail dot com. Upraxis at uh, gmail dot com. Uh, it's interesting talking about uh, oil shale. Uh, I know out in the Uinta Basin, eastern Utah, that's uh, been talked about as a panacea, a, a, a dream for for many many years, um, and, and you wonder when that's when that's going to going to hit you know big production. I, I don't know as much about the, the Uinta Basin, and I haven't worked there. Uh, you know, I think there some of the things that are holding up that process are uh, some of the ecological effects. You have endangered species, threatened species like the sage grouse there, um, uh, sharp-tailed grouse, uh, excuse me, and things like that. So, so uh, you know, they'll, I think over time they'll work some of those details out. There's some proposals with the U.S. Geological Survey with BLM to, to put some safeguards into place. So that's a, that's a moving target. Mm. Let's return to fracking. There's uh, you hear a lot of talk about earthquakes, and uh, some earthquakes uh, haven't been directly tied to fracking. I understand others. I think have. There, there's one in Youngstown, Ohio, I believe, uh, 2011, 4.0 on the Richter scale. It's, uh, have there been earthquakes tied directly to fracking? Well, there have been, but not very many. There was one case in England, uh, in the UK, excuse me. Uh, you know, a few in the central U.S., there has been a dramatic increase in earthquakes, small to medium earthquakes in the central U.S. The U.S. Geological Survey ties that to oil and gas operations. The, the action here, though, isn't the fracking. It's the disposal of the wastewater. We, we generate billions and billions of gallons of wastewater every year from oil and gas operations. Anytime that you pump wastewater underground, millions of gallons at a time, very high pressure, you have the possibility that two faces of rock will slip. And that's, that's what happens. The earthquakes are all about deep injection of wastewater, not so much about the fracking. So the, the companies are injecting this wastewater for, I guess, disposal yeah. in, into these cracks? Is yeah, that about, what's happening? There are about 30,000 Class II wells, which are oil and gas wastewater disposal wells across the country. Hmm. And they're pumping that wastewater down underground to keep it out of surface waters, you know, rivers, streams, and lakes. Hmm. And you're, you're greasing the faults. Uh, if, if, if the faults are there, okay. you, you're potentially greasing the faults. That yeah. right. So that's one take-home message. You know, when, if you start to see these tremors, um, don't keep pumping it underground, and then do, you know try and try and understand where those faults are ahead of time before a problem occurs. What about uh, so leaving aside earthquakes? So so that's probably a solution that we ought to look at is you look at where the faults are and don't pump it where the faults are. Right. That's correct. But uh, this water has to go somewhere, and it's laced with these chemicals. So where best to to dump this? And, and do these chemicals remain? Is it harmful after the fact? Yeah. So I think this is an area where there's some, some positive things happening, and there are also some areas where uh, we're doing things in different states that we shouldn't be. Um, some states traditionally allowed that water to go to public, you know, city municipal water treatment plants. That's a bad idea. Those plants are not set up to handle the volume of water and the chemicals that are in it. Some states, like West Virginia, it's still legal to spray that wastewater on land for disposal or to use it for dust control. That's a bad idea, too. I mean, you don't have to be a genius to know that spraying millions of gallons of wastewater with chemicals in it across land is a, is a bad solution long term. What's happened in the Marcellus is that private water treatment facilities have sprung up. That's a positive step as long as there are safeguards and people keeping track of what happens to that that water ultimately and how much of it is released into streams and rivers. But the best thing that's happening, and, and some credit to companies for driving this, is more recycling of the wastewater. So they treat the wastewater to some extent, then they use it to frack the next well. That's a good thing because it reduces the amount of water you need to start with, 
and it also reduces the amount of wastewater generated. So that's a really positive development. Hmm. What about the actual chemicals used? Should we regulate that or try to get companies to change that to a little safer? Well, I think ideally, uh, through public pressure, greater transparency, and initiatives that the companies themselves are taking, we should be phasing out the most toxic chemicals that are used in these. Um, States increasingly have new disclosure laws. Utah recently passed a new chemical disclosure law for fracking chemicals. But there are still... Uh, trade exemptions uh, for the chemicals used. In a typical well, there might be six, eight, even a dozen chemicals that are used on site that aren't disclosed. So we don't have full disclosure yet. There are legitimate concerns about trade secrets that companies use, but this is another area where greater transparency, phasing out those toxic chemicals, would remove a lot of the obstacles and the public perceptions about problems. What about the water in and of itself? And, and you know, here in the West, water is at a premium. And it uh, sounds like quite a lot of water is used. There is a lot of water used. A typical well uses somewhere between 1 and 5 million gallons um, to frack that well if it has a horizontal leg to it. Um, this is primarily an issue in dry areas. And the best example of this right now is in South Texas, in Eagle Ford Shale, where most of the water that's used is pumped groundwater. And that groundwater is valuable and used for many other things. So there have been some proposals recently to use things besides water, like, like propane. Uh, to frack the well. That may work in very particular cases where you have an abundant source of propane, where water is particularly scarce, but that's not a solution for most of the places. Propane's expensive. It's valuable. You're not going to see companies switch from water to propane. So I think that the take-home message with water is don't pull too much water out of one particular place, one particular stream, and think very hard about fracking in arid areas where water demands are high. Well, we have reached the end of our time. Uh, we'll have to uh, leave for another day some of this uh, hopeful uh, agreement between environmentalists and drilling companies. You can find more about that at uh, NPR. March 21st is the story from Elizabeth Shogren. Um, Fifteen voluntary standards for cleaner drilling practices, and, and perhaps Professor Jackson will talk a little bit about the, at his lecture. Anyway, the lecture is Oil and Gas Hydrofracking in the Marcellus Shale. That's at noon today on the OSU campus, Natural Resources Room 105. Robert Jackson here is a guest of the Quinney College of Natural Resources. He is uh, Nicholas Chair of Global Environmental Change at the Nicholas School of Environment at Duke University and professor in the biology department. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And uh, coming up on Monday on Access Utah, we're going to talk again about the environment. You'll recall yesterday I talked with Mark Linus, who's an environmental uh, activist. Uh, he embraces, unlike a lot of Greens, nuclear power. We're going to have Matt Pachenza from Heal Utah on to rebut um, the use of nuclear power. We'll talk about some other things with climate change. That's coming up on Monday. Tomorrow, of course, is uh, Access Utah with uh, Sherry Quinn, uh, Jack Schmidt, talking about uh, water, and that is tomorrow. For producers Danny Hayes and Addison Pace, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening.